Section 11 of The Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Section 11. The Naval and Military Systems. The main external feature of the history of the Eastern Empire is its long and, until the 11th century, even to some extent afterwards, successful resistance to its encircling foes. Some notice of the military system which enabled it to do so can hardly be omitted. The Roman army in A.D. 395 had entirely lost the semblance of what it had been in 200. It was a mass of heterogeneous mercenaries. The reason for this has been pointed out. We have also noticed that Leo I began to replace the mercenaries by native troops, and that under the Dardanian emperors, foreigners and Romans were nearly equally divided. Justinian I, however, preferred to work with mercenaries. As they were only hired for short periods, he found them cheaper. At the close of his reign, the disorganization was complete, and under his successors a fresh organization had to be carried out, which was, in its turn, swept away. The main idea of imperial defense in the period 395 to 641 was that the line of the Danube was defended by one army, the Armenian frontier by another, and the Euphrates in Mesopotamia by a third, while reserves of native and foreign troops lay near the capital. None of these armies were territorial. Their strength varied. It was kept up by levies from different parts of the empire. The disasters of the late Dardanian, Mauritian, and Heracliad epochs brought about the beginnings of a scientific territorial system. Such a system had, of course, to some extent, existed in the earlier empire. The frontier legions were largely recruited in the districts in which they lay. The recruits were, however, for the most part, camp children or chance waifs who drifted into cantonments, the populations of the provinces in the near were debarred from bearing arms. But after 640, a complete change took place. It had indeed been in progress for some time previously. The armies of the east, Syria, and of the Armenian border had now fallen back behind the line of Taurus, each was cantoned over a wide extent of country, which became its regular recruiting district. The same was done 
with the Imperial Guard, native, obsequi, and foreign, bucellari, the federati, optimati, and a division of the army of Thrace, which had been sent across to Asia. The coast districts from Mysia to Cilicia became the naval theme. In Europe, the armies of Illyricum and Thrace were distributed in the themes of Thrace, Thessalonica, and Hellas. At first, the themes varied greatly in size and strength. The Anatoliki were by far the largest of the armies, and could practically give the law to the others. Leo III, perhaps, as Professor Bury suggests, made the system somewhat more symmetrical. But still, the Anatoliki were very strong. In the Civil War of 740 through 742, Constantine VI was supported by them and by the Thracians only on land. He seems to have been outnumbered by two to one. But then Artavastos controlled the Thracians, Optimati, Obseki, Bucellari, Armeniaki, and a host of Armenian volunteers and raw levies. The Optimati probably in course of time disappeared, and their district either ceased to be a military department or was united to Opsikion or Bucellarion. During the ninth century, considerable alterations were made, chiefly in the direction of decentralization. The danger of the large Anatolic and Armenian armies being collected under one hand was obvious. In 863, when the whole force of Asia took the field against Omar of Melitin, we hear nothing of the Optimati, but five old themes, the Anatoliki, Armeniki, Thracians, Bucellarians, and Obsequians were all present, and three new ones, the Paphlagonians, Colonians, and Cappadocians, besides two Clisurarchias, frontier divisions, those of Seleucia and Carciana. The European troops which cooperated in the campaign were the themes of Thrace and Macedonia. Fifty years later, we find that Carciana and Seleucia have become themes also. During the period 750 to 900, there were no territorial acquisitions of any importance. The conclusion is, roughly speaking, that each great theme was divided into two or more smaller ones. Anatolicon, Armeniacon, and Bucellarion were split into eight, and the border districts of Carciana and Seleucia were enlarged and raised to the rank of themes. Two themes, Lycandos and Mesopotamia, were formed out of territory acquired in reign of Leo VI. The Kibirayot theme was divided into two, one of which retained its old name 
while the other was named after its headquarter port of Samos. In Europe, Thrace was divided into Thrace and Macedonia, Thessalonica into Thessalonica and Strimon, while Hellas was split into Hellas, Nicopolis, and Peloponnesus. A new naval theme was also created in the Aegean. The great increase in the number of themes during the 9th and 10th centuries was the outcome of a calculated policy of decentralization. It does not imply a corresponding increase in the number of troops, though doubtless there was a considerable augmentation as the empire recovered strength and prosperity. As to the actual numbers, it is fairly certain that in the 8th century, the five great Asiatic themes could put 80,000 men into the field for an invasion of Syria. For defense, they could probably, by calling in garrisons and depots, master more. It does not, however, appear that armies which conquered northern Syria, Bulgaria, and Armenia ever exceeded 80,000 or 100,000 men. The tactica of Leo VI affords tolerably good evidence that the army was completely territorialized. Each division had its regular district in which it was quartered and recruited. The organization of the troops was, by divisions, termi, brigades, drangi, and single battalion regiments, bandi, of three companies, still called centuries as of old, though as a fact each was 160 strong. The infantry battalion, including officers, musicians, and color-bearers, therefore probably totaled over 500 combatants. It included one company of heavy spearmen and two of archers and slingers. When in line, the heavy infantry, scutati, were in the center, the archers on either flank when charging. The scutati, of course, led the way. The archers following in second and third line and when the opposing forces closed, discharging volleys over the heads of the scutati. The cavalry was the premier arm of the service. The empire had to contend all its days with mounted foes, with whose rapid marches and swift, far-reaching raids, infantry would have been unable to cope. The cavalry regiment probably consisted of only two squadrons, each from 160 to 200 strong. Its strength in the field was always much less, owing to the Byzantine practice of carefully weeding out all but the thoroughly fit and efficient horses and men, and thus avoiding heavy sick lists. It may be set down at 250 troopers. The men were protected by coats of ring mail worn over leather tunics 
guards of plate on the arms, steel helmets and shields, and were armed with lance, sword, and bow. The presence of the latter weapon in the mounted arm is significant. The horses were also protected. Tactics were scientific and highly elaborated. The accepted principle was that the frontal advance should be always combined with a flank attack. Each band had a baggage train of 30 carts with 60 drivers and attendants, carrying in all 240 engineering tools, 60 baskets and sieves, 30 camp kettles and 30 hand mills, besides rations for man and beast, and reserves of arrows, medical stores, and perhaps pieces of armor to replace irreparable damages. The medical staff consisted of two surgeons and several attendants and bearers. The engineer's department was scientifically organized and trained, and well equipped. Space is lacking wherein to describe it and its engines. But it may be said in brief that sieges presented no difficulty to the average East Roman army. The divisions and brigades varied considerably in strength. This variation was the general rule. It was based on the principle of disabling an enemy from estimating the numbers of a Byzantine army until the actual day of contact. This principle was also followed by Napoleon. A division might contain from five to ten bands. A theme, one, two, or three divisions of each of the two chief arms. A theme of two infantry and two cavalry divisions would probably put into the field about 16 weeded battalions and 40 squadrons, or, say, 6,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry, with about 500 engineers, 2,000 non-combatants, 7,000 horses, and 900 vehicles. The number of the followers and carts is not excessive, as may be thought. An English battalion has five carts and ten four-horse wagons, a Russian battalion, twenty vehicles, and a European army corps appears to have one non-combatant for every four fighting men. The cavalry troopers were mostly of the small farmer class, the infantry chiefly peasantry. During their term of service, they were liable only to the land tax. The officers belonged chiefly to the local gentry. The tastes and habits of the Byzantine aristocracy were distinctly military, and there was no difficulty in obtaining their services. There was also a large leaven of adventurers, chiefly of Armenian and Caucasian strain. In quality, the army was decidedly one of the best that the world has seen. In estimating its merits, we must never forget that its advantage in armament over its antagonists 
was very slight. It could not check a savage army by storms of bullets and shells, and then massacre it comfortably at a range of 400 yards. Its archery had to cope with similar forces in the ranks of its opponents. Nor was the Byzantine bow the terrible weapon which England borrowed from Wales and therewith defeated stubborn Scot and fiery Frank alike. The army of New Rome faced and foiled attacks like the Ghazi rushes of Ahmed Kel and Tamay, which British soldiers found it hard enough to break with rifle and cannon, with no better weapons than sword and spear, supplemented by bow and sling. It appears like those of Greece and Rome to have been somewhat liable to panic, but on the whole its steadiness was great. In conclusion, it ought to be pointed out that the thematic system was essentially defensive. With the advent of epoch of aggression, it began to decline. The armies of John I and Basil II, constantly moving between Danube and Caucasus, and always on the frontier, had to be maintained at war strength by special methods, and the old machinery fell into decay. With the decline in the free agricultural class, also the practice of employing mercenaries, which had never quite died out, began to revive. Basil II employed a large corps of Russians. The foreign imperial guard became very important. Under the Komneni, probably two-thirds of the army were mercenary troops. Still, during the period 610 to 1025, the forces of the empire were mostly composed of born subjects and were as national as in a realm of many races they well could be. The navy was yet more important than the army but we have no such complete information concerning it. In 395, there were practically no fleet. The Mediterranean was a Roman lake. The Vandal settlement in Africa brought about a maritime revival. But after the conquest of the Vandals and Ostrogoths, the Pax Romana on the sea precluded the necessity of maintaining a large navy, and it was not until the 7th century that the Saracen naval efforts once more forced the empire to look to its fleet. At first it consisted of provincial squadrons, but in the 9th century the Cretan trouble compelled the emperors to organize a distinct imperial fleet which could be employed independently of the provincial vessels which were needed to police the coasts. Warships were generally termed dromones, fast sailors, but as a fact there were two distinct classes, dromones and pamphylians, which may be conveniently differentiated as battleships and cruisers. There were, of course, small craft also. They were certainly not the low, light, 
Lynn galleys of the late Middle Ages of Europe, which were evolved in the Venetian lagoons and were useless in rough weather. The classification of Dromones as battleships and Pamphylians as cruisers must not be carried to an extreme. The latter were built for speed, but were not necessarily unfit to lie in the line of battle. Flagships were usually specially built, and very large Pamphylians. The typical Byzantine Dromon was a vessel of considerable size, probably larger than a Roman quinquerem. The fact that it had only two banks of oars implies merely that the builders of the Aegean had discovered the folly of piling tier upon tier, and had developed their craft in the direction of length and beam, and also relied more upon sail power than oars, except for maneuvering. The crew totaled 300 men, or thereabouts, of whom 70 were marines, the rest seamen and rowers, the former being certainly fighting men. The great naval victory over the Russians in 941 gives a clear impression of the Byzantine ships as vessels of considerable size and high freeboard. Medieval galleys would have been easy to board even from boats. Amidships was a redoubt of heavy timber loopholed for archery, and on the forecastle a turret perhaps a revolving one, sheltering a Greek fire cannon and its gunners. The poop was probably raised and was the station of the officers. There were two masts, latin rigged, and perhaps thirty to forty oars aside. The second-class dromones had crews of about two hundred. The third which seem to have included most of the Pamphylians, from 120 to 160. There were also very light and swift small craft, Calandia, employed in scouting and dispatch-bearing. The Imperial Navy in the 10th century consisted nominally of about 200 ships, about equally divided between Dromons and Pamphylians, in the Cretan expedition of 963, there were apparently at least 100 Dromones and 200 Pamphylians. The decay of the navy in the 11th and 12th centuries was partly, no doubt, due to the disorganization of the Asiatic maritime provinces, partly to neglect consequent upon the driving of the Saracen flag from the sea, partly to financial difficulties. Still, in 1170 and 1172, Manuel I put afloat fleets of 200 sail. The maritime resources of the empire were still great, and naval decline must be attributed very much to indolent neglect under the Angeli and the sack of Constantinople which broke the empire up into various states, none of which was powerful enough to attempt to dispute the command of the sea with Venetians and Genoese. 
the vitally important part played in the imperial history by the navy has been noticed. End of section 11. Recording by Mike Botez.